Welcome back to American Scene, the show where we talk about movies with American in the title and what they have to say about American identity, culture, and values. My name is Ben Rosen. I'm Alan Austin. If you have anything you want to say about the show, any of our previous episodes, or anything we cover today, please connect with us on Twitter at AmericanScene underscore, on Instagram at AmericanScenePod, or send us an email at AmericanScenePod at gmail.com. Today on the podcast, we're going to go to the hop, we're going to rock around the clock, we're going to jump in our cars and cruise around Modesto. We're talking about American Graffiti. We certainly are, and Ben, because of this podcast, this is the first time I've seen this classic movie, which I've heard about as a film buff, which many would say you're a film buff, but you haven't seen this movie. You don't see every movie, it just happens, but I'm certainly glad I finally got around to it, thanks to American Scene. Yeah, this is this is the 1973 film, four years before Star Wars. 1973 film directed by George Lucas, written by Lucas, Gloria Katz, and William Huck, starring Richard Dreyfus, Ron Howard, Paul Lamott, Charles Martin Smith, Cindy Williams, Candy Clark, and Mackenzie Phillips, and of course, Harrison Ford. Nominated for five Oscars, including Best Picture, Director, Screenplay, Editing, and Supporting Actress for Candy Clark. Made... $115 million adjusted for inflation. That's about $600 million, just two spots below Incredibles 2 and two spots above Pirates of the Caribbean 2. It made a lot of money. That's crazy. It made a lot of money. That's really cool. Uh, so we're going to talk about nostalgia later on. Well, my nostalgia when thinking about this film was squarely the fact that George Lucas wrote it and Ron Howard was in it. Until I turned it on, I had no idea Richard Dreyfuss was even in the movie. Like, I knew Harrison Fo- Okay, here's what I knew about the movie. Harrison Ford has a small part. Wolfman Jack is the DJ. Ron Howard, George Lucas. All I knew about it going in. So I was like a blank slate with this movie. I really didn't have any preconceived notions other than Lucas, who I I don't, I'm not one of these people who pile on George Lucas. I don't really have an opinion of the man one way or the other in terms of a fan. Like he's just the Star Wars guy, really. Now he's the American graffiti guy, which he was way before he was the Star Wars guy anyway. But that's where I sit now with George Lucas. Yeah, it was really nice to rediscover this as a piece of his filmography. Uh, it's it's really good. Yeah. It's really good. I texted you. I was like, God, God damn it. This movie is really good. Uh, the film follows a group of high school grads on different adventures, cruising in their cars around town on their last night of summer in 1962 before they go their separate ways. This is also, strangely, by complete accident, our third in a series of all-in-one-day movies. And in some ways, they, they also kind of function as retrospectives. Um, obviously, American Graffiti, 1973, looking back at 1962. Wet Hot is 2001, set in 1981. And and Buffalo, you could argue, is 1996, but it's, it's set in much the same landscape as when it was first written in 1975. And, uh, and there you are. So uh, an interesting kind of grouping of of films we yeah we did yeah i I love that i love that when it's just kind of a coincidence i guess you could say one of the american themes is a day in the life like that's a common american just a day in the life in america and it's definitely something that is building in our research here yeah we've got myth of the american sleepover which uh you know may factor into our conversation somehow I, i see some some myths yeah. uh, being explored and, uh, in this film. You mentioned that. Uh, and I'm sure there are others. I'm sure there are others as well. 
You mentioned the characters, uh, four, four friends. They actually go their separate ways throughout the entire movie and then come together at the end. I thought that was a really nice touch because you think about the American pies, the this, the that. The friends, it's them as they bond. Superbad is clearly influenced by this film, as you pointed out to me. Many films are. And I really enjoyed that the four of them went on their adventures and then they came back together in the end, which is theoretically what their life should have been when they got old. Mm -hmm. Like they all went their separate mm -hmm. ways and then come back together at the end to re you know, reconvene and have fun. Really, really interesting element that I enjoyed about this story. Yeah, they it's kind of a, a microcosm of what their lives could be. Yeah. By the way, uh, I know it's jumping ahead, but the end, where are they now? It hit me. Like it came out of nowhere. I wasn't expecting it. And the what happened to them is like brutal. You know, it, it was uh it was just like so quick. Boom, 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 boom. Here's where these guys wound up. And it's sad, but it, it reminds you of their youth and how they lived when they were younger. And it, it, it's definitely got a an appreciation for high school age adolescence. Like this film just like soaks it in. Well, we're going to talk about whether or not it does come out of nowhere, because I think it actually works. I think, I think it think does it work. actually works really well. I think without it, it doesn't kind of cap off the movie in it, it doesn't kind of bring the ideas full circle that that are in this film it doesn't it doesn't kind of tie a bow on them so i mentioned that you know we've been doing this series of films that all kind of feel like retrospectives and i think I, I, we should definitely use that as a way to transition into our main topic which is the purpose of nostalgia in the american socio-political and, and pop culture landscape you know the consensus reading of this film is that it was really a memory piece capturing the moment before everything changed. I mean, this is a 1973 film set in 1962. It's it's a period piece made only a decade later, and yet it feels like a completely different time. Uh, you know, if you think about the, the ages of these characters, they were all born 1944, 1945, and they come of age during this golden era of, of a booming economy and a country at peace. And the timing of, of, you know, 1962, the, the end of the summer is just a couple months before the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's a little over a year before JFK is assassinated. You have the, the incoming civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, the escalation in Vietnam, all the other assassinations, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, uh, RFK. And in terms of pop culture, it was, it was two years before the British invasion and, and a massive change in the pop culture landscape as well. They do make a, a couple comments about music not being at what it used to be and Buddy Holly, you know, the day the music died and how it just wasn't the same. Yet the entire movie is narrated by this wonderful soundtrack of the times. And I think that's also a very obvious choice. And I, we both, uh, you know, listened to this video in our research about how the music is like one big ongoing radio station just like left on. And I think that was such a wonderful way to put it. And I think it's such a great backdrop for this film because, you know, you talk about nostalgia and thinking about what if music is timeless. So a good song is a good song no matter when it came out. And I thought that it was a really nice time capsule for the music of the time and how the people I, – I, here's what I'm trying to say. You think of old music, the 50s, and you think of people just being like simple and pure and – not getting into trouble. And that's not how it was. Like these people were like 
getting their hands dirty. They were menaces. But you don't think of that when you think of this old music because it was a lot cleaner. It was a lot more poetic and, and, and kind. So it was very interesting to see that duality going on while watching this. Yeah, I mean, I love this kind of music. I have a 12-volume vinyl set of oldies with a lot of these tracks on it. And the reason that I I like this music so much is that it's impossible to listen to and not feel good. Great way to put it. Great way. You just kind of sit into your chair and enjoy it. Yeah, it's great, great, like, making brunch on the weekends music. Uh, I'll just just throw that out there. Definitely done that more than once. (laughs) Um, maybe we should, our first character that we should talk about, since you mentioned, um, the references to changes in, in music is, uh, John. John Milner. Because he's, John Milner, he's the one who says right at the top, the whole strip is shrinking. Uh, you know, it used to take a whole tank of gas and a couple hours to do one circuit. And he says it was really something. And he's got this, like, he's already nostalgic for a time gone by, and here's a character who has never left town. He has seen the way that things have changed, um, and, and he's still stuck there. And yeah, he mentions, uh, uh, you know, that rock and roll's been going downhill since Buddy Holly died. Yeah, he is, so his character is very relatable. You all, He's the most towny of the crew. And, you know, his, 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 he's got that towny, like, almost like the way you think of the high school varsity quarterback. Like, he's the popular guy who is badass. Okay, he's more the, he's like if you took the Emilio Estevez from Breakfast Club and the Judd Hirsch, Judd Nelson, which whichever Judd, and combine them, he's got that reputation of being tough and badass, but he's really known for being the guy who races cars, and I think people take him for granted and just assume he'll be a townie, and, and he's the one who kind of like mocks Kurt and Steve for being college kids who wants who want to jump ship and head out of town. He he's definitely got his lore. His his sweet spot is his reputation in town. And I know I'm mumbling over myself, but I'm just so excited to talk about all this. So the thoughts are just flooding out of my head. But he, his character is definitely someone from your high school, wherever you're listening from, who lives in the glory of those days and just like capitalizes on the fact that he does something cool for let's call it like town fame. Yeah, everybody knows this guy. Everybody in town knows this guy. He's got a reputation, but but his reputation is being challenged uh, consistently. And he remarks on that a, a few different times. And and he's scared in a lot of ways. Like you mentioned uh, him kind of getting on on Kurt and Steve about leaving town. But I think there's it's there's a fear there. I mean, he's encouraging them to go, but but he's like, he's also realizing that yeah, and I'm just going to be here. I'm going to be having fun like I always do. He says something like that because they want to go to the they want to go to the hop and and relive all the all the all the fun times. Yeah. Um. And I think he knows that uh his time is up in some way. There's there's that great scene of him and and Carol uh strolling through the junkyard. Coming over there, that's Freddie Benson's vet. And got his head-on collision with a drunk. Boom! Didn't have a chance. He's a good driver, too. Uh, that's pretty grim when a guy gets it and it's not even his own fault. Needs a paint job, that's for sure. See that over there, that 41? That used to be, believe it or not, the fastest car in the valley. I never got a chance to race her, although. He got his 1955 in about the hairiest crash we ever had here. Jesus, you should have seen it. Eight kids killed and both drivers. 
Board of Education was real impressed, see? So they come up, filmed the whole thing. Now they show it in driver's education class. You'll probably see it if you get lucky. Of course, it's pretty tough when they take somebody with them. You've never had an accident, though. You told me. Yeah, well, I come mighty close. I almost rolled it a couple of times. But I've been just quick enough to stay out of this graveyard. And, and of course, his entire storyline throughout uh, the film is hanging out with Carol and rediscovering an innocence that is, is long gone by for him. Yeah, and I think it's a really interesting... So his, like, major storyline is that he's trying to pick up girls... And and I think this is where what's very interesting. So I feel like any other day over the last four years of high school, he drives by in that cool yellow car. Girls are jumping in. He's having a little trouble now. And I think the theme or what you're trying to – what I got out of it as when he stays in town, he's not going to grow. The girls are going to get younger. They're not going to be as into him. He, he's like – his reputation is going to expire at a point. And at the very end of the movie – he he pretends that Harrison Ford's character was going to beat him in a street race. He's like, oh, he had me beat, man. I was toast. And he clearly was like destroying him. But I think he just wanted to get away from that reputation because he was afraid he might not, it might not be as cool anymore. He might not be able to hold up his end of the bargain. And I think he just wanted like some sweet release from this reputation. That was the only thing he had going because he sees these other guys heading away to college. He's got to go away in his own specific kind of way and um i just found it i found his arc very telling about the local townie who doesn't grow out of himself he sees the signs that he needs to because he sees his buddies doing it but he doesn't know how yeah he's just got this one thing this this one skill steve and and kurt are, are at least from from just the looks of them the the more uh educated the more privileged yeah. uh clearly have access to adults who believe in them want to give them scholarships all this all this sort of stuff i mean uh we will get to the ending eventually yeah. because it as you said it ties everybody together it brings everybody together um and brings a lot of these these ideas together i just want to make one um, last point about john milner we talk about i talked about how you know his reputation's on the line it's a, it's a heavy crown you know heavy lies the crown of being the king of street racing and the coolest guy toad is still so infatuated with him he still like idolizes him and at the very end you see milner just kind of like embrace it because he still got toad at the end of the day he still got toad so that was a really nice touching moment uh yeah, why don't we talk about uh, Toad next? Let's talk about Terry. Let's call him Terry. Let's give him the name. I don't want to call. Him. He's he's Terry the Tiger. He's Terry the Not Tiger. Terry the You're absolutely right. Remember, I mean, one of the things that uh, that this movie uh, or that Super Bad totally rips off from this is this is McLovin. It, Terry's McLovin. It's, it's McLovin. Like it's it's clear not just in like the way that he looks and acts. But also things he does, like he goes to the liquor store, you yeah. know, he's trying to trying to buy booze um, and uh, just like the, the idea of playing at an older version, a more mature version of himself that he isn't right, that he just isn't. And and, and he'll, he can get there eventually, but he's not he's not Milner. No, no, he is not any of these other cool guys cruising the strip. And you know what? That's OK. You know, but but I think his story is so interesting. You know, I I talked, I I, I mentioned the myths that uh, uh, that that a lot of these characters believe in. For Terry, it's that this is the kind of guy that he needs to be. But in so doing, in in 
embracing this idea of a more mature, a more adult kind of guy, that's what brings the danger to him and Debbie. You know, his car is stolen, he gets beaten up, he gets sick, he drinks too much, you know, he witnesses a robbery, a drunk guy rips him off. Like, all of these things happen because he has not allowed himself to just be a kid. Yeah, he wants to be cool like Milner, he wants to get the girls, he wants to be a badass, and I think... First of all, his his arc is my favorite of the film. He's probably my favorite character. Him and Debbie combined as a duo. Probably my favorite characters. I love Debbie. She's so sweet. She likes him for him. And I think that's what makes him feel comfortable at the end. Like he doesn't need to put on a show. And just like you, the, the McLovin thing was stolen, whether they meant it or not, to a T. I mean, he gets the girl in the end. You know, the, the fake ID, the trying to be all cool. The it, It's just like right there. And I think it's a positive homage i don't think it's like a negative thing i just really enjoyed his arc i thought his performance was great all i know about him other than this is like the untouchables because he's great in the untouchables until he gets popped and he he, this was a really nice like you said guy trying to put on a show act tough act cool when at the end of the day all he had to do was embrace himself and he finally does and he winds up continuing the idea of needing to be tough and and you know we'll get to it but it, it never leaves him ultimately the idea of being super masculine and tough yeah well it's i think where where super bad and this film depart is that at the end of super bad mclovin is, is saying to the cops like hey can you like when you take me out can you like pretend that i'm still this guy yeah. you know because they know the truth um, and the girl that, that he's like in love with is, is, is still infatuated with this idea of, of a super, super cool McLovin. Whereas at the end of this film, Debbie and Terry both allow that myth that he has constructed for himself to be erased right. and kind of reset and, and accept each other for, for who they are and allow themselves to be kids. Yeah. You know? it's, it's a really sweet touching scene where, you know, she gives him the kiss, says, if I'm not doing anything, you give me a call. It was really, really heartwarming. So what about Kurt? Richard Dreyfus, who was, I, I texted he was 25 in filming this, looks 20 or younger. And then two years later, he's filming Jaws and he looks a decade old. <laughs> I mean, my God. I mean, wild. it was pretty crazy. Uh, his Kurt's probably my least favorite character. And that's only because I think his overarching th- Look, I know they're trying to fit in all this stuff into a storyline, but Kirk, the character, I just want to break down his thought process. He has second thoughts about going to college, and he tells everyone who wants to listen about it, because all he really wants is the reassurance from everybody that he should go, just to convince himself. But then there's that subplot where he's trying. he sees a blonde chick in a white T-bird, a 57 white T-bird, and he's got to have her. But why would you do that? Like, I think he's looking for a reason to stay and ultimately never gets it because all his friends reassure him he should go. And the girl's really just flirting with him. Not gonna, He's not going to be able to like get her number. Her, he won't even get her name. So his storyline's the most like, I get it, the local kid who's afraid to go away to college. But it's the night before. I don't really feel sympathy for him. I feel like theoretically, he would know whether or not he was going to go by now. And... He wants to hang out with his friends, and then he doesn't even really spend the night with his friends. He he goes off looking for this girl, which symbolizes the fact that he will eventually just go off looking for what makes him happy, not keeping him with his core. So not my favorite character, 
but it's it's all part of a great movie. So I'm just nitpicking. I, I love the movie. I love Richard Dreyfuss's performance. I think the scene where he meets Wolfman is probably one of the best scenes in the film. And it's uh, that's kind of how I feel yes. about Kurt. The guy who's afraid to leave, wants reassurance that he should go, but still looks for any reason not to go, just doesn't get it. That's that's pretty basic. That's how I feel about Kurt. Maybe you saw something different. Yeah, I agree that that Kurt is looking for a reason to stay. And when he sees this, I, I mean, even before he sees the blonde, he says, you know, where is this dazzling beauty? Where is, you know, where, where I'm that's what I'm looking for. And then he sees it and he's going to spend the rest of the night looking for this thing that might not actually be out there, you know, that he might not ever actually find and I think that, that that's his myth, right? That is that he has invented this thing that is is sort of emblematic of the era itself. This this perfect blonde in a in a fifty-seven Thunderbird. Like there's I don't think there's any image more that that, that could uh represent the nineteen fifties than that, you know? And so he's thinking that there's something perfect out there that that he can hold on to, but it's just an image glimpsed, and then it's going to vanish forever. You know, this the myth of this beautiful girl is, is shattered when she finally calls him, and they're not going to meet. He's not going to learn her, who she is. She, you know, she doesn't give him her name. <laughs> She's just going to keep cruising. This this world is it, it's it's not real. Yeah, you know, she'll never be real. She can only exist as a memory for him yeah and you know at the end uh and i think this this is a really interesting recurring thing and possibly a reason why you didn't like kurt is if you notice he's a passenger throughout the film he never takes the wheel until he finally drives off to the payphone to to hopefully get a call from this uh from this woman but even then he's waiting around for something and at the end he's the only one who does leave you know that he and Steve are kind of on opposite uh, arcs here. Yeah. Steve is is going to leave with him, and Kurt doesn't want to leave. And then and then at the end, Steve decides to stay with Laurie, and and Kurt goes off. And even at the end, he's he's a passenger in the airplane, but he has left the memory of this T bird on the ground somewhere. That's a really nice point. You know, speaking of Kurt and the the idea of finding a reason to stay. And being a passenger, he kind of like buddies up to like the no good biker gang or whoever they are. And albeit they kind of like take him under their wing, he's never comfortable with them. They do some shady stuff. And he thinks possibly that if he stays, he could be friends with these guys. But he ultimately hates that idea. So he never really like like with the White Thunderbird girl or with the biker gang he never finds, even though he has his friends, he never finds that alternate reality that would keep him here. Yeah, I love all all the stuff with the pharaohs is fun because, again, this is kind of that that danger out there that is encroaching on their otherwise pristine, innocent uh, uh, 1950s experience. Yeah. Um, and, and he's able to actually, uh, an interesting kind of, subversion of that is he's able to use his his innocence uh when the guys the the pharaohs are are trying to steal money from the the arcade yeah he goes in and he kind of buddies up to the adults because they they know him and uh they can trust him he's just oh he's just sweet young kurt uh, you know about to go off to college and he'll be a fine moose someday <laughs> uh it's, it's so great um 
Yeah. And, and again, something that we were touching on with each of these guys is, is they're all afraid. At a few different points, Kurt is, you know, Steve calls him chicken at the beginning because he's having cold feet about going to college. And then his ex-girlfriend uh, says he, you know, he was too afraid to ever make him, didn't know what he was doing when they were dating. Mm-hmm. Um, and also when he's talking to that creepy teacher who's hitting on all the all the students, which is just a gross scene um, that I'm I'm surprised that that wasn't one of the scenes that Universal wanted to cut because <laughs> uh, they wanted to cut a few scenes for uh, for the theatrical release. Um, he says that he's like he's going to find that he's not uh, con- not confrontational isn't the word not competitive. And so finally, the, the most dangerous thing he does at the at the end of the movie is the pharaohs are like, here's it's kind of an initiation. He uh, he fucks with the, the cop car. Uh, which Loved is that. so cool. Loved that. It's so cool. Yeah, yeah. But he finally, I think that's that's a moment where he proves to himself that he can kind of embrace the danger and the uncertainty of his future, um, and it doesn't have to be that scary. That's a great point, uh, Steve. So Steve being the flip side of of Kurt. Steve also very scared. Uh, there's the whole revelation when he's at the hop with Lori, and and she's talking about how. You would never ask me out, even though, like, you you know, you, you knew I liked you and you were too scared to kiss me. And, uh, you know, my, yeah, I even talked about it with my dad and my dad said that you'd figure it out eventually. But but he he never did. And and ultimately he is convinced to stay, I think. Yeah, because because he is scared. Yeah, he's scared. He's he's all bark, no bite. He's kind of like the the one in the beginning to the middle of the film. He's really kind of dislikable. You know, you're you're like, oh, this cocky, arrogant kid who's very full of himself. He already he's already talking about how they should break up because they're going to want to hook up with other people when they branch out. And he's hitting her with all this, which is all tough talk. Where was I? Oh, how you thought high school romances were goofy, and we started going together just because you thought I was kind of cute and funny. But then you suddenly realized you were in love with me. It was serious, and um, um. Oh, you're leading up to something kind of big. You make it sound like I'm giving dictation. (laughs) Well, seriously, what I meant was that uh, since we do care for each other so much, and since we should really consider ourselves as adults now, I, uh... Can I have a couple of those fries? Mm -hmm. Uh Uh, where was I? Consider ourselves adults. Right, right. I thought, um, maybe before I leave, we could, uh, agree that, uh, that seeing other people while I'm away can't possibly hurt, you know? You mean dating other people? I think it would strengthen our relationship then we know for sure that we're really in love. Not that there's any doubt. And his character is also someone you know from your high school. Just like, had the relationship, thought about the what-ifs, and then when he realizes the alternative, the grass is not greener, he's like, oh, shoot, I messed up, and I need to go back and save the day with the girl. And it's a lot of... Uh, his character is very naive in a way. Not necessarily you know, the good guy, but he's not a bad kid. He's just confused. He's young. He's immature. And I think this performance by Ron Howard, 
you know, it, it, all the girls flock to Steve when he's not by Lori, and I buy it. You know, you think like the Opie from Andy Griffith. Why would the girls like him? But Steve had this subtle confidence to him, and and I could buy why girls would like him. You know, as as tough and as much as he talked, like you said, at the end, he's the one who decided to stay, too afraid to see what was out there, and not willing to actually follow through with his grand schemes and plans and ideas. It was a really relatable, honest performance and portrayal of that type of kid. Yeah, well, I think the the women flock to him like the like the waitress because they see him as this sweet, fresh faced. Uh, nice guy, uh, which he is not no. really with Lori. Like as you said, like one of the first things he does when 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 he's in the car with her at the beginning of the movie is he's he's trying to say, uh, you know, yeah, you know, there's no doubt that we love each other and and you know that we're meant to be together. But wouldn't it be great if you know maybe we can date other people? It's it's a very kind of I think he's embraced some some toxic male like macho moves yeah. that he thinks he's supposed to do because uh, then there's also uh, you know Lori we're going to dance like I want to dance now I want to dance with you like come yeah. on and Lori's like no and she and he's trying to force her to dance and then he tries to force her to have sex later too like oh don't you want something to remember me by you know and then they haven't had sex yet I'm like Jesus I that, guy like I, I, I so I did say I don't think he's a bad kid I think he's just immature I think he's like a copycat of what he's seen from other people. I mean, you the, the whole something to remember me by happens a couple times in this movie and it's got to be a time like it was a thing of the times to be like something to remember me by a, a keepsake, a novelty to crystallize this moment forever in your personal history. That was definitely a theme. His version of that was gross where in the other sense where we see with Mackenzie Phillips and John Milner, I know I mixed actor and character name there, but it's more of a sweet sentiment after it doesn't cross a line. It kind of crosses a line, but it doesn't really. And she's comfortable, so it's sweet once you get that. Once once that understanding is put forward. Yeah, yeah. Well, the when when Milner is uh, has Carol in the car and and he's saying like you know finally professing his love to her. Like it's not it's just an act. Like he knows what he's doing. He just wants to get her a dress so he can <laughs> he can get her home. Whereas. You know, when when Steve is playing at Don't You Want Something to Remember Me By, it is a little bit more know, nefarious isn't the right word, but like he's he's going after something Aggressive. more selfish and more and more crude. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I think I think and kind of like, uh, uh, you know, maybe this this is another kind of symbolic thing. But on the surface, yeah, he looks like the nice, sweet kid. But underneath there, there is kind of uh, something potentially a little a little darker. And then we have Bob Falfa, yeah. Uh, which well, I don't know what's going on with that character name. Um, <laughs> it sounds like, <laughs> like Alfalfa. Doesn't Bob Falfa sound like the a character in The Simpsons who's there for one episode and is like a big deal? <laughs> which is kind of what he is here. Yeah. Like, oh, if this was a miniseries, yeah, he'd be in the la- he'd be in the finale, or maybe he wouldn't come in the finale, but his big moment would be and. He doesn't seem to have a group of friends. He's kind of a loner and outcast looking to make a name for himself. He's kind of an odd guy. He starts singing the song and Laurie's completely put off by it. Like he doesn't have his crew. He doesn't have his niche. He's the he's on the outside looking in and that's, you know, he he drives off the road. It's his character fails completely, but it's it's a very interesting thing to see in this town of locals who all know each other. He's the guy who everybody knows, but he's not in with anybody. 
Well, in that sense, yeah, he's the stranger, right? He's the stranger who's come to town, I think, um, with with the cowboy hat on, kind of this, there is something kind of like this this mythical Western kind of character who, yeah. who nobody really knows. And I think the fact that for most of the film, he is just kind of out there somewhere and you can hear his car in a few places. He is right. that danger that's lurking just beyond, That's that's lurking in the shadows. And also he's driving this jet black car. He's got a skull hanging from his rear view mirror. Like this guy is... Yeah. You know, this guy really, there is something about him that that feels dangerous and mysterious and and unknown. And uh, you mentioned him singing some Enchanted Evening to Laurie. It it kind of feels out of place. And you're like, first of all, Harrison Ford, great voice. Uh, Where's that been? Um, And and in that little, yeah, and that little bit of screen time that he has, personality oozes off of him. Like you can see why Lucas had him in mind. Yeah. Very, very, yeah, it's so, so charming. Um, but actually, that song works also in characterizing him as a symbol of something more mature, as this kind of danger that the kids don't really recognize, because that song's from South Pacific. Right. A musical that takes place in World War II. You know, something that no other song played in, in this movie on the soundtrack references. Something that the right. kids don't even reference because they were too, they were all born in, in 44, 45, with the exception of Milner, who was, uh, you know, five years old, I think, when the war would have ended. Right. Um, you mentioned the ending. Yeah, the, the story doesn't end happily or resolutely. Uh, you know, the, in the climactic scene, uh, the street race, Bob flips his car and he and Lori escape just before the car explodes. Like, these, these are real life or death stakes that are not as far off as they think. As, the, as these characters right. think. Um, and even the car explosion feels like out of nowhere, but this whole Bob's character has has represented this and and there are other references of, of kind of danger that's out there and and things that are less innocent and, and a little scarier that this that the, the car exploding really does work as as a metaphor for something that none of these kids are, are prepared for. It was a really drastic moment. I, I was relieved. Because they've been teasing the big street race for the entire film. Like, you knew it was coming. And I was really, I was expecting Milner to die. That was right off the bat. I'm like, oh, no, he's going to die in a street race. And no one died. No one really even got hurt physically. So it was quite a relief because then the movie hits you with a sad ending. But in that moment, I was glad to see them just get out of the car and be kids again, theoretically. Yeah, and actually, after they get out of the car, and and you had mentioned this earlier with with Milner and uh, and and Terry, when uh, Milner is like, "Nah, he had me beat. He had me beat." I think he I think he really does believe that. And then when Terry says, "No, man, you're 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 always going to be number one." Like, are you kidding me? You had him beat by a mile. Like I knew for like right from the start. And and Milner says, uh, "Like, yeah, man, yeah. Like I'll I'll, I'll always be the greatest." <laughs> so yeah. the two of them, um, who are the the two out of four of the, the guys who who stay in town, continue to believe this myth. Yeah, that yeah, it, that things are just going to continue. That Milner is going to continue to be number one, uh, you know, and, and and the greatest racer. And that's not, as we see in the postscript, the way things turn out. No, and I, you know, it's it's this will be a fun minisode because I want to go over like a lot of little things they peppered in. It'd be too random to cover now, but there's so much to this movie, so many little moments that 
it's just so wonderful. I, I can't get over how wonderful this movie is and how it set the tone. It is the gold standard of high school town day in the life movies, which there are many of. And this is probably the OG. I don't know if anything came before. There have been, you know, similar stories, but this was what seems like the mold is. Yeah, but I think there is a difference. And, and now we can kind of expand the conversation of of not just how you know how how Lucas portrayed this this moment in time just before everything changed expand it beyond to talk about other you know uh, I think our cultural obsession with nostalgia uh both in pop culture and and sort of socially and 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 politically uh, obviously, right now we have the the MAGA of it all, the the Make America Great Again. This this kind of idea that at some point in the past, everything was good. I don't think that's Lucas's argument here. Like that, wouldn't it be nice to go back and and it should all be like this again? I think he's actually holding on to this as a memory, knowing that it's impossible to stay in that time and make it last forever. I, I completely agree with you. I don't think his intention was look how good it is. I think he wrote this looking back on his own experiences and just turning them into a story. I don't think he's trying to prove a point of it was greater than you could I could see why people think that because everything goes to crap for so many of them after the events of this movie that he he wishes he could go back and live in the time where things were easier and freer. In that sense, maybe there's a little nostalgia, but I don't think he's pining for the culture that was. I think he's more pining for the innocence that a high schooler has before they go into the real world. So I could see why people would think that. That's just my opinion. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think Lucas is... Uh... It, it, it's purposeful nostalgia in in saying here was this time that we're never going to get back and and but this is what it was like not like what not wouldn't it be great to go back because we can't we can never go back no um no. and because we and we right. fly off more with, like... with kurt at the end we literally do not go back as as an audience member right um but there are so many yeah. other examples of nostalgic films of looking back at the past but None of them feel weighted in this same way. They all feel like these kind of, you know, mostly coming-of-age stories. I, I know in the 70s we also get Last Picture Show that has a lot more weight to it, but none of them have this kind of sense that, um, you know, so things are about to change. You know, right now, I just, I looked up, right now we're going through this super nostalgic time for the 90s, um, which I, I think is understandable considering, you know, this is, pre 9-11 a lot of it's pre-internet as like the last innocent era in america um as we've talked about previously you know an, an era of general economic and social stability and i think the current nostalgia does feel longing for a simpler time um but a lot of it is just kind of for the sake of hey remember this and and and, and i don't think any of it speaks to what's to come in the same way that this film does yeah i think the nostalgia thing. I have a friend. He, his whole, let's call it shtick, is 90s stuff. And I always read it as he's trying to relate to a very specific audience. And I have never really been like the... I call it the Midnight in Paris. Because the whole plot of Midnight in Paris is people wanting to live in a, in a decade through rose-colored glasses, the, the way they see it from the outside looking in. And and when the Owen Wilson character goes back, he meets people who wish they could go back, who, who then blah, blah, blah. 
I think of the 90s, I think of how much I hated the, well, it would be like the early 2000s, how much I hated middle school. Like, I don't think like, oh, this was like my heyday. I think of it as like, man, sometimes it sucked growing up. I, I don't have that mentality. So when I hear that nostalgia stuff, I go, I, I think I'm more of a, I remember that, but I don't think the world needs to go back to that. Like I, when I think about Doug or Rugrats, I'm fond of those memories because they were my favorite shows as a kid. But I don't think, hey, we need Doug to come back now. Like I like that kind of living, like not living in the past, but keeping it in the past, appreciating what it gave you when you were younger, and using it to move on. That's how I feel about that kind of nostalgia stuff. It is nice to look back and, and think, wow, things were a little different. But I think the idea where it gets twisted is we need to go back to that. I think that's always such a – no one is learning, no one is growing if that's the way they truly think. And that's not how everyone views nostalgia. But there is a good contingent of people who view nostalgia as a goal rather than a lesson or a story. Yeah, totally. I mean, I was saying also like – there's a not insignificant population of people who wish that they could go back to the 60s, you know, for the yeah. for the, you know, free love and and, you know, drugs and the the culture and the music and the and the style without recognizing all the darker stuff that comes with that. Um, yeah. And there are some nostalgic things that that are coming out now, like uh, Cruel Summer or, uh, you know, there was a, a Quibi show called When the Streetlights Go On that that takes place in the 90s and kind of, you know, digs at like a, a, a darker, um, you know, you, you, there was also darker stuff going on, even though everybody had Tamagotchis, right? Like, I don't think yeah. that's helpful either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's, you know, effective on its own. Like, you tell a great story, great, but I don't think you're, I don't think the nostalgia there feels as purposeful as, as it does here. Yeah, I mean, my wife and I are currently watching Impeachment, uh, and it is a a period piece, but the period is a time I remember well. And when Linda Tripp is recording phone calls on her cassette tapes, I think, wow, that's a pretty accurate representation of that time. I'm never like, I wish cassettes were back, because that reminds me of a simpler time. I just appreciate the fact that they get the, the period correctly. And when I think about this film, seeing Mel's drive-in is a good kind of nostalgia. Like, that's like... It's just a fact a, of life. It's not, it's not right. hey, do you remember this? Or remember the dial-up modem? Like, it's not, it's just yeah. a fact of life. It's not, none of it is showcased. None of it is showy. I agree. Um, yeah, and I like that. I mean, granted, I I love Pen Fifteen. I think Pen Fifteen is phenomenal. Um, and you mentioned uh, uh, impeachment, uh, American Crime Story, the the OJ uh, season was phenomenal. I mean, there was so so much thematic depth. So it it is it is possible. But yeah, a, again, there's a lot of stuff out there that's just like, hey, this is just kitschy '80s '90s stuff right. that that you know uh, people of a certain age can can point to and say, oh, that's I remember that. And and to that point, when it's done correctly, with that being like VH1's I Love the 80s, I Love the 90s, I was in on that because it had a very specific goal. We are going to look back at the trends and movies and music of that time and comment it. But they did it from a place of kind of like it was goofy, not like, man, this was great. This was great. It was more like, I can't believe it was this. And I was down for that. I used to love those as a kid. So sausages. It, it nostalgia's got a place in time and when it's done well it's great and when it's done for a cheap pop as wrestling fans would say it's kind of like nauseating 
Yeah, but it's not going anywhere. I mean, if you look at not, never will not, not just things that are set in the '90s, but now I mean, every single reboot and remake and and everything like it's it. I mean, we we grew up with stuff in the stuff in the '90s and and 2000s that's getting rebooted, and because now we have families, we have kids that are I mean, like all the Disney live action stuff. I mean, this is a whole other conversation of just like I don't want to be like an yeah. old fogey saying I don't you know don't you know this is all uh, uh, too. Um, you know, don't don't touch the stuff from my youth, but you don't need to spoon feed us our our childhoods. Yes, and I think that the the important thing with let's call them just remakes and reboots is you have to like there's got to be a way to have like a disclaimer, like hey kids, don't let this version of when a stranger calls be what your memory is when you think of when a stranger calls. Please see the original first. Like, there's got to be some kind of disclaimer because, like, <laughs> I mean, th- there are some really bad remakes, and and clearly we could get into it on the minisode even of just like good nostalgia pops, bad nostalgia, like recreating for the sen- sake of making a dollar. Like, that's a whole that's a whole rabbit hole. But when you think of this kind of film where nostalgia is the set piece and not like a remake of something we once loved. That's also better. Yeah, well, Lucas comes to it really honestly. Again, this is yeah. like these are experiences that he had. These are people that, um, you know, aspects of his character that he's written into these these these, these four different guys. Um, I, I do want to say that this is very honest, and it could have been very dishonest. A lot of times we witness writers who are in their 40s or 50s trying to write for high school kids, trying to, you know, there's that meme about the Queen's Gambit character. And it's like, oh, this is what middle-aged white men think a uh, breakdown is or whatever that meme is. And like, I think that's kind of unfair because a good writer can write good. (laughs) A good writer can write well, I should say, no matter their (laughs) age, time, or place. But I like that this feels like Lucas wrote it the day after he flew off on a plane as if he was Kurt's character. It feels very in the moment. It feels very honest. And it seems hip to the times. So wonderfully written. Yeah, I, I don't know that Lucas would have been able to write this maybe even 10 years later. He's so close to it in time uh, when, right. when he does this uh, that's, uh, that, that it works so well. Um, what do you say we get into some American moments? Absolutely. Playing our song. Why don't you kick us off? I will kick us off. Okay, my first American moment is the the Sonic style drive up restaurant. Like the you put your tray on the window. Like I just think of like 1950s America. That's one of the first thoughts I have. Are those dry? I forget what they're called. Drive in restaurants. Uh, whatever they're called, that is my American moment. Just seeing that the tray hanging off the window, the 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 waitress rollerblading or roller skating up to your car, like that is an American moment. Yeah, yeah. Mel's not the not the one that's on uh, Sunset. It's a uh, different Mel's, but uh, yeah, classic. Oh, duh, it's called Drive classic. In. Obviously. <laughs> well, you said that. You said Drive In. Yeah. Okay. I have confirmation. Um. <laughs> I, you know, I didn't have a ton of American moments uh, because so much of this is, of course, like just it's it's like if you're picturing the 50s or the early 60s, like you, you see American graffiti. Yeah. Like that's what I picture, you know, is like that's this is our like cultural touch point for what that era looked and sounded like. So it's just it's just wall to wall with with uh, with those kind of moments. But um, the car salesman, I yes. mean, my God. 
yeah what a what a random moment that is just like <laughs> but it was great terry, terry pulls up and he's like oh i'm not prepared for this i don't know what's going on here i gotta <laughs> i gotta get out of here this is a really a beautiful car you know that of course you know it you know what i'd like to give you for this car i'd like to give you one thousand dollars i can't give you that but i'm not going to give you a, a whole line i'm going to tell you what i can no, give no, you come I, over here no, I, i'm not going to like a 525 video of this practically new vet now i'll tell you what i'm going to do i'm going to knock 10 percent right off the top how about that now that's 98 dollars down understand 98 dollars no, down no, 98 dollars no, a month no, now you ask me how can i do this i'll tell you how i can do it my boss he wants to get rid of the sporty cars oh, you all right yeah, he right. wants to get no, rid of the sporty cars i don't think it's no, really? a good idea no. okay listen no i want uh, you to listen I, I, to me. i'm busy i'll make it easy you can't things say things no to no, no, leave me alone for god's sake yeah um well staying on the theme of cars a lot of american cars in this film of There's course, a, they wouldn't well, be anything else. Yeah, they so wouldn't be anything else. A lot of Pontiacs, a lot of Fords, a lot of. Uh, I'm not a car guy, so I can't tell you like Milner's car was a blank, but the Thunderbird, the Ford Thunderbird. So, American cars flooding the streets, where a, a big theme of the movie is cruising. So yeah, uh, the school dance, the hop. You got to go to the hop. The got to um, go to the hop. Is, let me ask you a question: Which uh, which is the better movie band? Do you think it's this one or the one from the prom from American Pie? This one easily, like, <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> uh, but neither of them, and this is a neither of them oh, as good God. as the band from old school. Oh, I thought you were going to say neither of them had as good a singer as uh, Oz. <laughs> Time to drop it, of course. Believe in magic. magic. What was that? <laughs> I had another uh, American moment if you're if you don't have anymore. You know, we don't uh there was no American flag, I'm sorry to say. I didn't see a single American flag here. Uh there's a couple of red, white, and blue things. Uh it's like the big ice uh sign at the liquor stores, red, white, and blue. Um also the red, white, and blue decorations at the dance, like the re- the drum kit is red on stage and there's like a blue and white backdrop. So there's some red, white, and blue uh coloration. Gotcha. In some places, but I didn't see an American flag. Wow, interesting. Uh, my last American moment is the uh, make out at lookout point kind of deal where you, you <laughs> go in your car to a secluded place, theoretically over a cliff. and, and Yeah, they called it, it necking. It necking. Was necking. <laughs> make out where no one sees you. That's that's kind of like Americana, I believe. Yeah, totally. Um, and Bob's cowboy hat. Sure, yeah. Yeah, it's a good one. Like, an, an American symbol. It reminded sure. me of David Marshall Grant's cowboy hat in American Flyers. Yeah, man. Yeah. This movie, though, is chock full of great lines. Like, this is my favorite line. When when uh, Terry is talking to Debbie about, like, the car and stuff, he goes, well, I have a Vespa. I really had a good time. Yeah, well, I guess I have a pretty good time just about every night. Well, if I'm not doing anything tomorrow, why don't you give me a call, okay? Yeah, all right. Um... I got a little Vespa that I just kind of play around with. Maybe, you know, we... Really? Well, that's almost a motorcycle, and I just love motorcycles. My favorite line of the movie, because she's just so nice to him, gung-ho, ready, you know, ready to hang out, ready to have fun. He just needs to be him. I love that. There's a reference to the Lone Ranger, which is pretty, you know, of the time. That's what's cool. You're just like the Lone Ranger. There's some, you know, 
there's a lot of hinting as what's cool, what makes you a man. Wolfman Jack, how there's a character, I think it's Carol, says her mom won't let her listen to him because he's black. And then at the end, Wolfman Jack doesn't reveal to Kurt directly that he's Wolfman Jack. And it made me think maybe he's just trying to keep that under wraps. Maybe he's got this mysteriousness as much as he possibly can, keeping it under wraps so that he doesn't have any trouble in the local town. I don't know, but it it did make me think a little bit. And obviously everyone knows to just find him at the radio station. So it's not really, I, I, I just, I'm trying to figure out why he didn't tell Kurt he was Wolfman Jack. And then it hit me because he wants his advice to come from him, the man, not the character on the radio. And I thought that was really cool. Oh, sure. You mean in terms of how he relates to Kurt? Yeah, I think that the reason that he doesn't out himself as Wolfman Jack is, you know, it's the it's the maintenance of that myth. Yeah. And, of and, who this of who this guy really is and, and where and where he is. Like somebody said, he's like an alien. He's like flying <laughs> around and station to station. And yeah, yeah. Like it's it's another myth that for this town, like it's it's important that 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 is uh, protected. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. And there was there's a lot of innuendo in this movie. Like I forget the exact character goes into the car and they say, "I'll let you touch it." The upholstery, like there's like little like innuendo and and it, it, this movie just felt very honest. Uh, the, the the craziest things in the movie are the gunshots, the 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 robbery, the the destroying the cop car, and the crazy deadly crash at the end of the movie. Everything else is grounded in somewhat of normalcy and and reality. Well, even the even the car crash is is grounded because Milner talks about you know other guys who who died. So it's 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 not that surprising that 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 could have happened. Yeah, and and um, there is a line Milner says. I think it's about his car. Till death do us part. So I really thought that was foreshadowing him dying at the end. But he's in his car when he dies anyway. So it was till death do us part. Yeah, and just to just to wrap up where where the other folks uh, go. Um, yeah, Milner's killed. Uh, Terry's MIA. Uh, Steve is an in- insurance agent, so I guess maybe he he may as well be dead. Uh, no, that's it. That's that's, <laughs> that's not fair. insurance agents. I know it's not fair. Uh, but he's uh, but he's not living in town anymore. But he but he and Lori have kind of settled down into this classic normal American life. And Kurt, I realize, uh, probably dodged the draft. Yeah, by moving up to Canada because he's in Canada. He's a writer living in Canada. I was like, oh, why would he be living in Canada at that time? Hmm, yeah, and I wonder. Terry is MIA from going off to fight in the war. Yeah, so they've all, all you know, had these uh, stakes of adult life uh, just uh, imposed on them. Yeah, really wonderful stuff. This was a great movie. Yeah, I'm ready to give it a rating if if you are. I re- I am. Yes. On three, right, why don't we why don't we say what we're rating it on three? Ready? <laughs> <laughs> One, two, three. Three, three and, and a half, half out half. of four. Wait, no, four. we fucked that up. <laughs> uh, we both give it three and a half out of four melting popsicles, which melting we did popsicles. not. Cl- we we did not discuss this beforehand, but we went. Well, we did, but we didn't plan that <laughs> to have the exact same rating. I mean, Wolfman Jack's really pushing those ice pops when Kurt comes over, so they definitely stuck in my mind. Man, I wanted one. I was like, which what kind are there? Is it? He's got any uh, like choco tacos in there? What's he got? <laughs> <laughs> do you have the uh the spider-man one the spongebob or... one yeah <laughs> man uh, so good. good stuff so good so good i you know i ultimately i was thinking man i kind of just want to give it four out of four but in both times i watched it towards the like latter half last 40 30 minutes i'm like 
okay, can we like, it's a long movie for, for like the kind of movie that it is. It's, yeah. it's still, it's a two hour movie. So, uh, yeah, but, but yeah, man, so, so good. So, so, good. so rewatchable. It's, and there's so much more to it than just, just a coming of age story. Absolutely. And that is a wrap on American Graffiti. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what we're doing, please give us a rating. Leave us a positive review. You can give us your unfiltered opinion on Twitter at American Scene underscore. And if you'd like to follow either of your patriotic co-hosts, I'm Ben Rosen on Twitter at NotThatBenRosen. I'm Alan Austin at Alan underscore Austin underscore. And we'll see you next time.